So when I was first asked to, to share about a fear I've had, I thought to myself, I'm not really a person struggling with fear. I have jumped from airplanes, I've skydived from a mountain in Switzerland, moved halfway across the world, my kids live in different parts of the world. So fear has really not been a part of, of my life. But at the time when I was asked that question, I was actually afraid of an upcoming 100 mile race that I was doing, and to the point where I would wake up at night anxious and afraid, um, thinking, can I do this? Um, I've been a runner for about 10 years, and three years ago I ran my first 100 mile race. And it actually went really well, and it was a good experience, came in second female, so I thought I'd do it again the next year. And um, I think I was a little overconfident, not mentally prepared enough, and so ended up dropping out at my 72 with dehydration and stomach issues. And so I think that all led into me feeling, can I do this, as I signed up for, for this race in January. And it got to the point where I actually met with a friend and told her, I'm really scared of this. And I'm not scared of dropping out. I'm not scared of not getting a medal. It was actually scared of pushing through the hardship that was going to be a part of it. For people of my friends, it was like, oh, she's done it before. But this was different because I was really afraid and anxious beforehand. Um, I'm happy to say that as I ran the race in January, um, it, it went really well and I finished the race. And I feel like every challenge along the way, with God's help and with my friend's support as well, I, I got to overcome and, and I'm really thankful that I did. Yeah, um, anybody who runs 100 miles, you have to ask what she's running from, not what she's running to. But uh, I can say that, by the way, because it's my wife that did it. But um, I can really say that uh, she did wake up. Uh, many times in the middle of the night, the fear was real. Um, yes, she did run 100 miles, and yes, in one go, she needed a bathroom break and everything else, but, um, and she did it, and she did it afraid. Now, we're in week number three of our series, Do It Afraid, where we're just looking at a guy who had to do so many things afraid in order to do uh, God's will, and we're returning to Nehemiah today. Now, today's message is entitled, The Fear of the Fight, The Fear of the Fight. Now, a quick recap, in case you're joining us today, or maybe you're not familiar with the story of Nehemiah, or even with the Bible. Nehemiah is a guy in the Old Testament who God called from a country uh, outside of uh, Israel to go back into Israel to Jerusalem specifically to rebuild a wall that had basically been brought down. So that's basically the story and this guy had to encounter or overcome a lot of obstacles in the process. Now today we're going to jump back into the book and we're going to be looking at Nehemiah chapter 4, chapter 5 and chapter 6. If you've got a Bible you may want to turn there. Now, I'm mindful when I talk about the fear of the fight or the fear of conflict that it may seem rather strange to devote an entire message to the fear of conflict. That is until we realize that conflict at its core is perceived by the brain as a threat and reacts to it in very similar ways to how it would react to fear. You see, conflict and threat activate what's called the limbic system, which is the emotional system of the brain, and very quickly, our heart rate will change, our breathing rate can change, and yes, even our body temperature can change. 
And that is a sign that stress hormones like cortisol are basically being released into the system. And then there's a chain reaction that begins to come into play where we'll typically do three things. We will fight, we will, there's flight, or we will freeze. Think about it. Isn't that the way that many of us actually deal with conflict? Or many of us deal with fear. There's fight, there's flight, or there's freezing. And if the amygdala, I've got to think about that. I said amygdala in the first way, but that's the way the Welsh people would say it. But the amygdala, if the amygdala, which is the emotional response center of your brain, feels threatened and you allow it to run in the way that I've just described, then what happens medically is that your prefrontal cortex is impaired. Now, here's what that means. That means that the prefrontal cortex, that's where your decision-making comes from. It doesn't work properly. And so if in the middle of a conflict, you allow yourself to feel threatened, what's going to happen is these hormones are released into your system, and then all of a sudden, a chain reaction is brought into effect that actually impacts the way that you respond, meaning that Biologically, literally, you may not hear what is being said correctly. It means that you won't interpret what is being said in the right way. Now, this is just how the brain works. I'm just talking medically right now. So it's easy, isn't it, to understand how medically, why conflicts get so heated so quickly. It's just medicine we're talking about, biology. It's easy to understand why in our getting the kids ready to church this morning, this entire process took an illogical turn for the worse. And we can sometimes find ourselves getting in the car thinking, how on earth did that happen? The answer is, you did it afraid. Literally, you ran with your fear to the point where you were out of control. And conflict is one of those areas where we do something afraid. Literally, out of a fear of the threat, and the more pain in your past, the more threatened you feel in your present, and that makes conflict resolution really difficult. It means facing the obstacles, which are often people in front of you, in order to get to where you believe you need to be, it makes it a whole load harder, because quite literally, you are out of control. Now, Nehemiah experienced threats and conflict that he had to fight through. These conflicts were real. The fight was real. But Nehemiah, even though he did it afraid, did it in control. He made a choice. And the question today is, will we make that choice? Now, before looking at three specific types of conflict that he had to work through, I want to read one verse, Nehemiah chapter 6 and verse 9, which is critical for us to understand that Nehemiah faced conflict afraid, but he didn't face it out of control. He didn't allow the amygdala hijack to take control of the way he responded. The question is, do we? Nehemiah chapter 6 and verse 9, you won't see this on the screen. All the other verses will be, but this one you won't because I want you to read it. I want you to see it. This is what it says. They were all trying to frighten us. 
All of the conflict in chapters 4, 5, and 6 is designed to frighten them. Why? This is what they were thinking. Their hands will get too weak for the work, and it will not be completed. So all the conflict in chapter 4, 5, and 6 is designed to get the people to think that they were too weak, that their enemies were too strong, and they wouldn't be able to do it. So what happens? What does Nehemiah do? Look at this. But I prayed. What does he pray? Strengthen my hands. Think about it. They intimidated them. They tried to frighten them to get them to think that their hands were too weak to do the work. What does Nehemiah do? He doesn't say strengthen their hands. He says strengthen mine. Nehemiah embraces the fact that there is a fear component whenever you have to face opposition. But he's not willing to allow fear to stop him from doing God's will. God strengthened my hands. See, Nehemiah faced threats. And he faced them well. Not because he wasn't afraid, but because he knew that God was near to him. And as we said in week number one and in the intro, the antidote to fear is not summoning all the courage that you have. The antidote to fear is knowing whose you are. You are God's son and daughter. God controls your life if you have surrendered your life to him. Nehemiah faced fear well because he knew God was near. And that enables him in this moment where he feels like his hands are weak to say, God, I'm not quitting right now. Even though I feel like it, I make the hijack, I'm going to stand on the truth. The truth is that I'm your child, and the truth is that you've got this. So he faced three types of fear, but he faced it well. First type of fear is what you would expect. It's that external opposition. It's opposition from the outside. We see this in chapter 2. We see it in chapter 4 as well. Let's have a look at a couple of verses from chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. When Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. Why? He feared what the Jews were doing as a threat. What happens when you feel threatened biologically? Your brain will release stress hormones into your body. And then from there, a chain reaction comes into being where you will flee. You will basically uh, be stranded. You will be frozen or you will fight. He chooses to fright because he perceives it as a threat. So what does he do? He uses his mouth. He ridiculed the Jews and, Jews, and in the presence of his associate in the army of Samaria, he said, Where are those, what are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer their sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble burned as they are? Tobiah the Ammonite, who was at his side, said, What are they building? Even a fox climbing on it would break down their wall of stones. I love what we see here. It's a classic reaction of someone who sees someone doing something and feels threatened. And in that moment, they're out of control. They're doing this afraid, very, very afraid. And they need to be because God is with Nehemiah. But here's the point. Sambalat's name means thorn in secret. He was quite literally a pain in Nehemiah's side. He is to the Old Testament 
what the thorn in the flesh is to the Apostle Paul in the New Testament. And I'm sure that if you've ever attempted to do something significant, make any change of any kind of consequence in any environment, you've had your thorn in the flesh moment too. At some point in your life, at some point in your career, at some point in your relationships, you got burned by someone who loses their mouth because they're emotionally out of control. And here's the thing, once you experience that once, it can expose you to social anxiety, which basically means that you are kind of bent on never allowing that to happen to you again. So you back off. The principle behind the lessons that we're going to look at today is, is simply this. Being nice was an outdated strategy that hadn't paid off for God's people. And some opponents just needed to be confronted. And God raised Nehemiah up to confront these people. Not because he was oblivious to conflict, but because he was aware of the presence of God. External opposition. It was real and it was definitely there. Sambalat had held the people captive. And in this story, Nehemiah was about to set the people free from Sambalat's control. And he achieved this. Not by removing the fear of the attack. Not by removing the fear of reprisal. But by helping the people face their fears. And by getting the people to realize God was with them. And if God was with them, nothing could stand against them. External opposition. Secondly, we have internal opposition. This is chapter 5. Internal opposition is one of the hardest things that you need to deal with. It's often difficult because you often don't expect it. One of the hardest lessons for a church is to realize the biggest threat that a church faces is not the attacks from without, but the disunity from within. And I want to suggest to you that a lot of the reasons why churches become so divided and split is because we don't react to internal opposition in the right way. A lot of the reasons why churches split is not simply the Paul and Barnabas scenario that we looked at months ago where God wanted to kind of divide and conquer but because the leader has responded to understandable questioning and criticism in the wrong way. You see, when something is so important, differences of opinion will occur. If you're planning things for your family, if you're planning a life, you're thinking of starting a business, thinking about starting to do anything, if this is so important to your family, to your business, to your church, then guess what? People are going to view it differently. Internal opposition isn't always bad. It's natural. If something is truly important, different opinions, especially amongst family members, are inevitable and natural. And over the years, I've need to realize that someone can stand against my opinion, and that doesn't mean to say that they're standing in opposition to me. My ideas and not the same as my person. See, God has given me two ears and one mouth for a reason. He wants me to be twice as quick to listen as I am to speak. 
And the more important something is, the more inevitable internal opposition becomes because different people have different ideas. And the more important something is, the more opinionated people become. And that's not wrong. The problem is, it feels like it. And you see, whenever people talk about this internal conflict, it is usually the emotional dimension that they're describing, wrongly concluding that this conflict is negative. But again, in biblical terms, because of a sovereign God who's always in control, conflict is actually neutral. It's natural. It's not necessarily negative. It's actually neutral. It's neither destructive nor constructive in, in, in and of itself. It's what we do with it that actually counts. And again, if we allow ourselves to react to the perceived threat, these emotions, these hormones are kicked into play, and we will do one of three things. We will fight it, we will run from it, or we will freeze in the face of it. And invariably, if it's the people that we're doing life with and the people that we love are exposing us to this perceived threat, it's easy to understand how we get it so wrong. And so here's the point. While it is true that the probability of conflict increases depending upon the stupidity of our actions, right, we all know that. It will nonetheless be constant because we are all imperfect people and some things are simply that important. What have we got to do? We've got to realize that when something is that important, it is going to be our experience of feeling threatened. And when we are threatened, we need to respond. And we will often do it afraid, but we cannot do it out of control. Nehemiah faced internal opposition, and we'll see this. He never did it out of control because he knew God was with him. God had this question, do we? Thirdly, he faced personal attacks. Nehemiah chapter 6 is the personal attack chapter. Nehemiah chapter 5 is the internal opposition chapter. Nehemiah chapter 2 and 4 is really that... Uh, external opposition chapter. But in chapter 6, we read of these personal attacks. Now, we started off with chapter 6 and verse 9. They tried to frighten us, but I prayed God strengthened my hand. So, already the scene has been set here for the realization that Nehemiah is encountering fear. He's not oblivious to it. And then straight after that chapter, we read, after that verse, we read these words. One day I went into the house of Shemaiah, son of Deliah, the son of Mehetabel, who was uh, shut in at his home. He said, let us meet in the house of God inside the temple and let us close the temple doors because men are coming to kill you. By night, they are coming to kill you. So the temple is a place of sanctuary and safety. But I said, should a man like me run away? Remember, he's just prayed, God, strengthen my hands. Should a man like me run away? Or should someone like me go into a temple to save his life? I will not go. Why? Because some opposition needs to be faced. I realized that God had not sent him. Now, we're not told how he realized this. This word, realized, makes us think that it was because God revealed to him in this moment, wait a minute, they're trying to get you here. That's the implication. I realized that God had not sent him, but he had prophesied against me because Tobiah and Sambalat had hired him. 
And now from the rest of it, it seems as though he was a, a little bit more informed of their plan. He had been hired to intimidate me so that I would commit a sin by doing this, and then they would give me a bad name to discredit me. I've got to say that I really resonate with uh, passages like this. I, I've never had a hit placed on me in the way that he has. Probably the closest I've come to it was we were supposed to go to Nigeria next weekend to visit David and Esther. You remember David and Esther? They came over from uh, Nigeria because his uh, stepfather or his dad, I think, or his father-in-law had been chopped to pieces by an Islamic fundamentalist group and his associate pastor had been burned to death. We were going to go over there to encourage him, take a lot of support. And uh, basically through the difficulty in the country, we were told, hey, reconsider your travel at this time. Uh, we told David, and David said, oh, pastor, please, we've hired a police guard for you the entire week. It's going to be safe. <laughs> I thought hiring a police guard for me when I go overseas doesn't sound to me like safe. In this moment, I felt vulnerable. Nehemiah in this chapter feels vulnerable. I've never had a hit placed on me. But next weekend would have been the, uh, the, the, the only time I could think of that I would have felt like that. But I have to say, I still know what it's like to be involved in a profession where personal attack is real. Never did I expect that when I entered into ministry uh, that it would be like this. I entered into Christian ministry out of a desire to help people encounter the God who quite literally had saved me and transformed me. That's why I went into ministry. Never did I expect it to be, uh, to include so many personal attacks. Never did. But here's what I've realized. If any of you ever get involved in something that is life and death, personal opposition is guaranteed to follow you. It's guaranteed. And you either have to kind of literally man up to that, or you basically run away from it. And I want to tell you, there have been many times in the last 27 years where my personal thorns have raised their ugly heads. Every year, my personal Sanballat will send uh, an email and distribute it to as many of the people around me as he possibly can, trying to discredit me in the way that Nehemiah does this. And every time this happens, I ask myself, God, why am I doing this? Why am I doing this? God, it's not as if I'm not going to abandon, it's not as if I'm going to abandon my faith if I don't do pastoral ministry anymore. But God, I didn't sign up for this. All I want to do is help people find the hope and life that is found in Jesus Christ. In moments like that, folks, the temptation to quit is real. But you know what? What Paul experienced when he went before God and said, God, take this thorn from me. God said to him, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect, made manifest in weakness. Is my experience over and over again. There is a call on my life that means that I cannot quit, even when it is easy to do so. Now, what's, what's the point? The point is, if you are going to get involved in anything that is life or death, personal attack will follow. And one of the hardest things to do in life is to actually embrace the threat for what it is, but to orient yourself towards God and realize that the work of the Holy Spirit is to make you stronger in the face of the threat, but softer in the presence of God. It is really difficult personally when you face attack to keep your heart soft. 
it is really easy to allow your heart to grow hard. And what I love about Nehemiah is he never allows his heart to grow hardened. And why? Because he's constantly, constantly going back to God with prayers like, God, strengthen my hands. Now, in the face of external opposition, internal opposition, personal attacks, it is understandable how this emotional response kicks in. Fight, flight, freeze. We will deal with these situations afraid, but we do it out of control because we're not responding in God's way. The question is, how does Nehemiah deal with these things and what can we learn from it? I want to say from the life of Nehemiah and even from my own experience, it doesn't have to be that way. There is a different way. As emotional intelligence expert Daniel Goldman explains, we don't have to surrender to this amygdala hijack where emotions take over. When we are aware of what's happening in the, in the perceived face of a threat, we can name it for what it is, and then we can begin to retake control of our emotions, of our decisions, and of our responses. Goldman says that old count to 10 trick still works. Because in that moment, it gives our prefrontal cortex, that part of us that makes good decisions, the time it needs to get back into the driver's seat. You see, it is true. Fear is in the mind. But so is the response. So consider these three truths. When, in the face of a threat, whether through people or through situations, you begin to feel so vulnerable that your emotions start to, uh, to determine your response rather than your faith. Three things we need to do from the life of Nehemiah. Firstly, in moments like that, what we have to do is we have to position other people for greatness. Now, this seems strange, so just go with me here. What I've discovered in moments where I feel the most vulnerable is in moments like this where my emotions are starting to kick in, there's that hijack going on, I've started to realize that fear and idolatry are cousins. Craig, why, why would you say that? You see, when I'm afraid... I'm giving serious credence to something or someone that I believe is in more control of my destiny than God himself. Folks, that's idolatry. That's putting someone or something else on the throne. And then I realize that in the moments of fear, my breathing, my heart rate, my temperature, sleeping patterns... Everything I'm thinking about is this threat. Everything I'm thinking about, in other words, revolves around me. And it's in a moment like that I need to stop and I need to realize, wait a minute, it's actually not about me, it's about him. It's actually not about me, it's about us. It's not about me, it's about other people. My life is not my own. It's being bought with a price. And the minute I start to do that, the minute I start to realize God is in control. You see, fear and idolatry are cousins. It forces us to put us on the throne when God should remain on it. 
And what is intriguing to me is when we read Nehemiah, he positions other people for greatness. In other words, he brings them to the point where they have to face their fear. And he does it in the way of pointing them towards God and pointing them to other people. Have a look at this example in Nehemiah chapter 4, verses 13 through 15. Therefore, he says, this is about all the threats and everything else. Therefore, I stationed some of the people behind the lowest points of the wall at the exposed places, posting them by families with their swords, their spears, and their bows. This is a really strange way of getting people to deal with their fear. Don't you agree? Putting them at the lowest point of the wall where they are the most exposed. After I looked things over, I stood up and said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your families. Your sons and your daughters, your wives and your homes. When our enemies heard that we were aware of their plot and that God had frustrated it, we all returned to the wall, each to our own work. At first glance, positioning people at the most exposed places doesn't seem such a great way of thinking about them. But Nehemiah did this because he knew that this preemptive measure would probably save them from further and more deadly opposition down the line. An experience of God has helped me overcome this once, God's faithfulness in the past is actually the source of faith in the present. God will do it again. Sometimes we need a face of fear in order to overcome it. Nehemiah positions people for greatness by bringing them to the point of their fear and helping them overcome it. I've shared this story before, but it came back to me as I was reading this text that many years ago we lived in Germany and our kids were really young. And I think Alec was about three or four at that point in time. And, and uh, we went to an outdoor German swimming pool, which is the kind of way we did it. And there was this like, uh, what, 15 foot diving board and Alex three or four. And before we knew it, he was climbing up this diving board and he was walking across the, the kind of board. And we were like don't, thinking, don't. But before we did, he just jumped and he went like this and belly flopped straight in the water. Came up out of the water and all we could hear was a scream. Everybody was like, oh. So what does my German wife do? I'm told the similarities between Germans and Dutch people. She gets Alec, Alec gets to the side of the pool. He gets out and she marks him, marches him straight to the bottom of the ladder and tells him to do it again. The boy did not want to do it again, but he did it again. And he did it afraid, but he did it in control. The lesson in the text here is that initially that Nehemiah, what seems harsh, is actually so important because he takes Alec back to the point of his present fear and helps him realize that done the right way, they will overcome. They will overcome. But notice what Nehemiah says. Don't be afraid of them. He acknowledges their fear. Hey, guys, this fear is real. The perceived threat is also real. So what do you do in a, in, a, in a situation like that? The emotions are going. You can see this. The enemies are there. They're there with their work tools just by their side, and, and they're there with their, with their weapons in the other hand. What do you do in a moment like that? What does he tell them to do? Remember the Lord. See, the solution to fear is not courage. It's actually adoption. It's knowing you're God's child. God's got this. And then what does he say? Remember who you're doing this for. You're doing it for your families. 
You're doing it for your sons. You're doing it for your daughters. The way to overcome fear is to take your eyes off yourself and to start to position other people for greatness. Folks, in the moment of fear, we are tempted to believe the lie that it's all about us. It's not about us. It's about God, and it's about the people that we love. And the worst thing that we can do is to give in to fear. Sometimes the best thing we can do is to face that fear in faith in the community of friends. Position other people for greatness. While you're counting to 10, tell yourself, it's not about me. Get, your eyes off, get my eyes off me. Put them on guard. Remember the people I love and who love me. While you're counting to 10, do this too. Pay due diligence to the threat. It's pretty clear from chapter 4 that Nehemiah did due diligence to the threat. He had them at the lowest point with weapons. He takes the threat seriously. And in chapter 5, we see this as well. He does due diligence to the threat. This is what we read. When I heard the outcry in these charges, I was very angry. So what does he do? I pondered them in my mind and accused the nobles and officials. Notice this. When he knew what they were trying to do, what happened? There's a threat going on. Emotion. He became very angry. Emotion. It's natural. It's understandable. Something's threatening you. But what do you do with it? He, what does he do? Pondered them in my mind. He thought about it. See, the reason many of us deal with conflict and the fear of conflict and the threats the wrong way is because we respond first and ponder second. How many of you have had a conversation with your spouse or with a friend about something that's really important, and you've, uh, basically you start to feel these feelings, for Nehemiah in the text, it was actually about anger, okay, frustration, and then you respond by saying something that you shouldn't have said that you didn't mean, but you said it, and they think you mean it. Am I the only person to ever have done that? And then you spend about 10, 15 minutes trying to tell them that you didn't actually mean what you said, even though you felt it. And, well, believed it at the time. Nehemiah is so good at conflict because he ponders first, responds second. Folks, if we respond before we ponder, our conflict resolution is ponderous. There's something to this. The word ponder basically means consult with myself. When you feel threatened, do you consult with yourself or do you react? Do you respond or do you react? It also means giving serious thought. Are you giving serious thought to the things that threaten you, or do you respond? Nehemiah is in a situation where it is so easy for him to respond out of anger, but he ponders. He consults with himself. This is the model of self-control. You see, if we respond before we ponder, we end up spending so much time actually getting ourselves out of things that we said that we didn't mean, but we said it. 
The other side of this is a conflict-shy people often cause more problems in the long term than they contribute towards the common good. As afraid as we may be of conflict, we should fear the consequence of not paying due diligence to an issue and not speaking up about an issue even more. We pay due diligence to an issue, a threat, when we ponder it. Early on in my ministry, I got involved in London in seeing some painful experiences in ministry, really good, just where God was growing a leadership team together of dealing with some stuff. And I, I really learned through that healthy experience that important conversations demand everyone ponder before they respond. Some threats are so important, some decisions are so important that the last thing I should do is respond before I pondered. In fact, even at our elder board, I've recognized that our elder board need more time to ponder. So what we'll do even in our elder board meetings is we will have discussion items on our elder board agenda, where, which basically means that through the notes that I would have given and the conversations that we would have had, which would have happened one week before our board meeting, and for four weeks after it, the elders have pondering time before they respond. Because I've recognized good decisions don't happen when they're instant. In an instant, good ha decisions happen when we take our time to ponder. It's been revolutionary for our elder board. It's actually been revolutionary for my own experience too. And so before every critical conversation, I take time to ponder. I use Microsoft OneNote for this. I've got a folder in OneNote that basically has critical conversations. And before every critical conversation, I sit down and I ponder. I say, God, in using Nehemiah's words, strengthen my hand. I've got a really important conversation here, and I need to know how to have it. I'm a man of many words. The countdown is going down. You all know that. But I've recognized in situations like this, I've got 15 seconds, and that's it. How do I say this thing in 15 seconds? How, how do I do this? And so I realize how important this is to conflict, to conversations. And so I take time to ponder before I respond. And then when I do that, I'm in a far better place to actually look at what's going on in the other person. I'm in a far better position to actually engage with what I sense coming from the person I'm talking to. So I will... Notice when the person is getting emotionally hijacked and notice them getting defensive, becoming rigid, becoming inflexible. I notice when I walk down the hall and after the conversation whether it's a good thing because I can usually see how the spouse responds to me. That's a great tool, by the way. Have a hard conversation with someone, walk down the hall and uh, see how the, if the spouse looks to you after the conversation. If they look you in the eye, it went well. If they walk past you, it doesn't. You know why? Because we are really good, especially guys, we are really good at dealing with an issue in work, going home, unloading everything on our spouse. It'll take two hours to talk about what went wrong, and then we go back the next day, we've worked it out, but our spouse is still in the situation of dealing with all the emotion of it. We've got to look at what's going on in people. And when they get defensive, they're rigid, inflexible, getting too emotional, taking things too personally, becoming too sensitive. 
If we've pondered all of this before, we're in a better position to see it. We watch for triggers. We seize on point of agreements. We look for what we need to give up in order to achieve what is truly important. And then in those moments where the anger comes, knowing the way the brain works, knowing how this is such a big deal, rather than seeing anger, I choose to see fear. And when I see fear in someone, not anger, do you know what? I respond with compassion rather than indignation, because I get it. This truly is a big deal. What's the point here? Every relationship that we're involved in, if it's meaningful, is based on give and take. And our willingness to ponder, to think about it before we respond, is the way that we can adopt a positive attitude and basically do what we need to do, giving away what we should and, get, and receiving what we need to. And when it doesn't go well, we should bring in other people. You know, in my experience, having put that into practice more often than not, these conflicts help end up in a healthy place. And I thank God for that. Nehemiah's relationships ended up in a healthy place. Why? Because he pondered. He didn't just respond. And I want to say it again. If we find ourselves in conflict situations and we are responding before we've thought, it's unlikely to go well. We're going to spend most of our time trying to clear up those things that we said that we didn't mean. But we said it anyway. That's not the way that relationships work well and work best. If something is so important to you, then do yourself a favor. Do the person you're talking to a favor. Do your community a favor. Take time to ponder. That's the best way to deal with the amygdala hijack. Take time to ponder. Thirdly, this is the most important thing. I would have started this with this, but I want to end with it. While you're counting to 10, you're remembering it's not about you. Idolatry and fear go together. You're taking yourself off the throne, putting God on it. You're starting to realize, okay, what is the real issue here? What am I really dealing with? But in all of that, we've got to realize there's God. Over and over again, Nehemiah points himself towards God. Just a couple more examples. In these conflict scenarios, but we prayed to our God and posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. Nehemiah didn't respond before he pondered. Pondering involves prayer. That's the point here. There was a threat, so they prayed. I, I love Nehemiah. Before there was work, there was the worship team assembled. Do you notice that? Hey, we need to go and build the wall. So guess what? We need a worship team. We wouldn't have done that. Hey, we need to take these threats seriously. So guess what we're going to do? We're going to pray first. Who is it that said, was it St. Francis of Assisi? I have so much to accomplish today that I have to make time to pray. It's about orienting, reorienting our hearts towards God. Here's another example. I also shook out the folds of my robe and I said, in this way, may God shake out of their robes and possessions anyone who does not keep this promise so may such a person be shaking out and emptied now this is a stronger one conflict is coming it's an internal opposition nehemiah is essentially praying god either change them or take them many years ago i read this and god just spoke into my heart that prayer the way to deal with internal opposition craig is for you to pray god change them or take them and I said this once to some leaders, and they say, are you saying take them to heaven? And I said, no, 
But for some people, they're so unhappy here and in every church they've gone to that maybe the best place for them will be heaven because that's the only place they won't complain. This, this prayer here is basically not a prayer of direction. It's not a prayer of affirmation. It's a prayer of petition. God, just deal with them. And then in that, God, how do you want me to deal with them? But notice, in both of these scenarios, Nehemiah is orienting himself towards God. He's thinking about other people, but his heart from beginning to end is about God. And do you know why? The antidote to fear isn't the courage that we muster. It's the vitality of our relationship with God. Some of us have so many obstacles to overcome that faith is a sign of strength. It's not a sign of weakness. You spending time in prayer before God is a sign of you recognizing that you need God's help. Let me begin to wrap this up. We need to, in all of our fear, keep God at the central place. Keep God in the throne. Not our fear, not someone else. God's got this. Go back to the introduction week. We need to live with the fear of God, which is that recognition of all that God truly is. In a chapter about the disciples' mission in the world after Jesus had gone, Jesus in Matthew chapter 10 gives these words to the disciples about guidance and with conflict especially. This is what he says. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Those are strong words to disciples. But you know what Jesus is doing? In chapter 10, he tells the disciples, look, these 12 disciples, he's saying, you, you, you disciples of mine, your experience after I'm gone will be like mine in the rest of my life. If you read Matthew chapter 10, everything that happens to Jesus in the rest of the story is said in Matthew chapter 10 to happen to the disciples as well. Jesus tells them they're going to be taken before governors and kings. They're going to be put on trial. They're going to be whipped. They're going to be flogged. They're going to die. In that moment, it was very easy for their emotions to get out of control. So what Jesus does in this moment, he speaks a very hard word to them to bring them back to emotional reality, to spiritual truth. He is orienting them back to what is really true. And what is really true is, look, people can take your life, but they will never rob you of eternity. That is yours. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather be afraid. The fear of God, that's the healthy thing of the one who can destroy the body and the soul in hell. Now these words remind us of the person who needs to control all of our life, the one we need to fear most. We need to fear God. And that is why last scripture here, Proverbs 29, 25, the fear of man, the fear of people will be a snare. But whoever trusts in the Lord, he's kept safe. Listen, some of the opposition that we're going through is so real that the emotions are understandable. But you know what? Our feelings can't always be trusted. But God always can. 
And I want to encourage you to reorient yourself towards the person and the presence of God. You can overcome all that stands against you, not because you can do this, but because God has got you in His presence. There is all the strength, there's all the peace, and there's all the power that you need. Believe it and receive it in Jesus' name. Let's go to God in prayer, shall we? Let's pray. Father, I want to pray that the example that Nehemiah sets in the way he dealt with those things that came against him would become our experience. In those moments where our emotions are set to overwhelm us because the threat seems so great, God, won't you enable our hearts to be redirected towards you? And in that moment, Won't an awareness of your presence just fill our souls and bring us peace so that we would know what it is that you're calling us to do? God, we thank you that you've got us involved in so many things. The threat is real. And God, I want to pray that in that we would do due diligence to it. We would position others for greatness by taking our eyes off ourselves, and that we would look to you the author and perfecter of our faith, that we would trust you and act in faith of what we know to be true, not on the basis of our feelings that can so often disappoint us. Lead us to that place, we pray in Jesus' name.